<laughs> Attention parents and grandparents. The world's greatest children's book author, Brian D. McClure, brings you two books, The Raindrop and The Sun and the Moon, both available at Amazon.com and UniversalFlag.com. The entire family has been waiting for these books. Buy both The Raindrop and The Sun and the Moon by Brian D. McClure, and your children and grandchildren will be inspired, entertained, and educated by the messages and illustrations contained within. For more information, go to www.universalflag.com. The universal flag is a symbol that represents our global community, transcending differences while honoring the uniqueness and commonality of all people. The Universal Flag companies have reached out to over 67 countries because half our world, 3 billion people, live on less than a dollar a day. Brian D. McClure's mission is to spread this symbol globally to inspire and give hope to people in need. Make a donation today to the people who need it most. Help global empowerment prosper through the Universal Flag companies and make a donation now. For more information, go to www.universalflag.com. That's universalflag.com. The Healing Formula is an all-natural OTC wound care formula developed for bed sores and other chronic wounds. The Healing Formula was invented by a home care nurse and is 100% guaranteed. Please visit our website at www.healingformula.com or call us at 800-357-2944. That's 800-357-2944. Good day and welcome to A Call to Consciousness with author and host Brian McClure. Brian and his guests share their personal stories to empower you in knowing that you too are the difference makers in our world. Now, here's your host, Brian McClure. Hi and welcome to A Call to Consciousness. This show is brought to you by the Universal Flag Companies. The Universal Flag and Symbol represents the oneness of everyone and everything. It reminds us of the simple truths that we all hold deep inside of us. It reminds us of the oneness of all, the divine nature of all, the eternal nature of all, and the interdependence that we have on everyone and everything. The universal flag is represented by a constituency that is endless. There's nothing to join. We're already there. We're all members. And this symbol is reached out to 110 communities so far. It's not 67. We continue to grow in each day. And as it continues to grow, it continues to spread our message of oneness and interdependence. And speaking about interdependence, it's something that we're going to learn a little bit about tonight. Tonight we are very pleased to have, uh, as our guest, world-renowned water and environmental activist William Marks on A Call to Consciousness. And as I read through the long, and I mean long, list of accomplishments that William has achieved, several thoughts occurred to me. Number one, William's been a good listener to his inner voice. You know that inner voice that speaks to all of us on a daily basis, but most of us don't tune into enough. I think that William's tuned into his inner voice. And number two, and this is a great lesson for all of us, he's followed his passion from the books he's authored, the companies he has founded, and the awareness he has shared concerning water, 
pollution, and our resp- responsibilities in this world. He has made a huge impact on our world. Well, William, welcome to the show. Brian, a pleasure to be here. And, uh, you know, about the flag, the universal flag, um, in reading the definitions and the representation of it as a symbol, which are quite profound, um, what I like about the flag, Brian, is that it looks like waves of water. And the I know it represents uh, vibrations of energies, but also the wave symbol in the flag to me uh, resonates with waves of water. I'd like to hear that. Yeah, so perhaps you'd like to add that, but uh, maybe it was something that was done on a subliminal basis, but to me it appears very vividly, and I see it as a good representation of waves of water. Well, I can tell you it was divinely inspired. It wasn't something that I was uh, destined to do, I didn't think. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I was awakened for for me many, many nights over many years and told to create that symbol, and and I really thought Oprah or someone else would do it that really had some some thrust, maybe even you. (laughs) Oh, very beautiful, and so apropos for this time in history, Brian. It is the perfect time. You know, I would love to hear, and I'm sure the listeners would too, just a little bit of your call to consciousness. I know that you grew up on a small farm in in, uh, uh, New Jersey, and uh, that, uh, you know, it was an organic farm, but you've done a lot of things with water, and somehow in reading the material about you, I just know that water has been a main theme in your life. How did that happen? Uh, It's been an innate part of my life since early childhood, and I was raised in a family of nine children. But out of the nine children, uh, my parents have always observed that I had this deep affinity for water, uh, to be around it, to play in it. Uh, We had a stream running across the back of the farm, and uh, whenever I wasn't around, they were looking for me. They knew that that's where I was. (laughs) They'd go back in the back pasture, the second pasture especially, where I had a little tree stand where I used to go lay down up in the top of the tree and watch life come and go to the stream. So it's always been a very important part of my journey, and I feel very blessed that it has been. And I saw that you helped dig a well. When you when you started, your well started running low. Your family dug a well, and you almost drowned in that well? Yes. The, uh, the fam- we did not have that much money. It was an organic farm. Uh, and our well went dry one summer, uh, and uh, so we were digging it deeper. And uh, my dad had me down in the well, and I would... Uh, dig down and uh, put the gravel and sand in a bucket and he would haul it and empty it out. And uh, I got to a certain depth and we started getting trickles of water so he um, had this pump um, and we would dig a hole in the center of where I was digging uh, down about 20 feet and as water came in the pump would pull the water out. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, at a certain depth, the water started pouring in, not only from under my feet, but from the sides. And uh, the sand slipped in and grabbed hold of my boots, and I was stuck, and the water was filling up. 
And so it was a, a bit of a um, panic up above. <laughs> and um, when my dad put the ladder down, the ladder was sinking into the sand, so that didn't do any good. So he, uh, I was stuck in my boots, so he tied off the top of the ladder to a nearby apple tree and came down and grabbed hold of me and pulled me out. Wow. What a close call with something that you've been so close to for your entire life. But what it did, it gave me this uh, great appreciation as I was digging to see the rivulets of water coming in from the sides. And uh, after that, walking on top of the land as a young boy, I I always had a sense of the stream of water flowing beneath our feet, flowing through the earth. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, uh, gave me this uh, deeper attachment uh, to water at a very young age, which I, again, was so highly appreciative of. You know, water is something that I didn't know much about until I started this radio show and I started taking a look at global issues. And, uh, you know, within the past month or two, I've, I've been over in Africa, and I've seen firsthand the lack of knowledge about water. And it was the first time in my life that I was really shocked. I, I really had no clue that other parts of the world, and I've been to other parts, I guess I just never thought about it. Water is something that is sacred, and there's a complete misunderstanding in a number of places that they've never been given information about water. And what parts of Africa were you in? I went to Sierra Leone first, and then I went to Uganda, and I uh, was out into the uh, provinces. Um, I went to some of the poorer areas in Sierra Leone, some some uh, uh, camps that have been around since World War II, Grafton, which has uh, about 10,000 people in the camp that I went to. They tell me the community supports about 40,000. And their toilet facilities were um, shocking, and it was very close to the stream where I saw people uh, bathing, people washing clothes, and the same stream that they get all their water from, and, and everything I assumed from you know their waste leaches right back into that. Um, certainly, I couldn't drink the water, and they don't have the resources to have bottled water. Um, you know, yeah, the, with the um, dysentery, typhoid, cholera manifest in various regions of uh, Africa because of what you just stated, Brian, as well as uh, India, China. Uh, we have a lot of environmental refugees, tens of millions of environmental refugees around the globe as we speak because of uh, mismanagement, abuse, disrespect for our um, non-availability of water. You know, environment's changing, deserts are expanding, um, the uh, El Nino and La Nina, the um, currents uh, of the upper atmosphere are changing. So uh, we don't have the flexibility anymore like ancient humankind used to have when there was an area of drought or water shortage. Uh, we would just migrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now in Africa, India, you migrate and you uh, come to a border and there's uh, a line of military personnel from the neighboring country and then you have these encampments, uh, the environmental refugees, and then you have, of course, 
uh, the disease that runs rampant through those encampments. And um, we do our best in the developed world, the world that's a little bit more blessed, to try mm-hmm. to get food and water and sanitation into those camps. But sometimes, uh, for political reasons, we can't, we don't have the access or the resources to get in there soon enough. And um, you have a lot of people dying, dying off, and uh, very rapidly. Uh, you know, you're the person that can answer my question. I, I was in Sierra Leone. I was in Freetown, which is, you know, where, where literally millions of refugees have come because of the uh, child soldiers that they had uh, during the, uh, uh, the uh, civil or the revolution that they had uh, with the rebels. And, um, you know, in that town where we opened up a school for, say, 155 students at the time, four-, five-, and six-year-olds, the only toilet facility they had was directly next to the school. And when I documented it, when I took a film of it, and when I opened the door and saw and smelled, I knew that I wouldn't even let my pet go to the bathroom there. But these children had to go to the bathroom there, and so did the teachers, and it was a public toilet, so everyone in the town went there, too. And I was just wondering, you know, what other opportunities they could have if they don't have running water, because so many people, they just don't have running water, they don't have electricity. And I know that we have outhouses here, we have septic systems, we have all kinds of things. Are there those opportunities in developing cities like Freetown Mm -hmm. to have those created? Or is that something that is just an impossibility with the corruption that goes on? A lot of corruption, well said. And uh, we are making efforts, but um, these efforts, again, um, they are uh, increasing all the time, every day. I know that Sierra Sierra Leone, um, well, they emerged from over a decade of civil war, which Mm -hmm. was all these war atrocities. And again, it was fighting over control of the limited number of natural resources. In Freetown, you were near the coast. Uh, But... um, you know, it was a lot of atrocities. Tens of thousands of people were butchered or allowed to die because of lack of access to water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I do know that the um, United Nations, of course, stepped in, and there's some reasonable—when were you there? I was just there a couple months ago. Yeah, right now it's—there's um, some, uh, I would say— uh, there's a great peacekeeping effort taking place there. Um, what uh, the rebels have been pretty much disarmed, mm-hmm. and now um, some management of the natural resources, some control of getting uh, good water and food to people. Um, but uh, yeah, that area is a bit of a nightmare, and I, I don't know. It'll take generations of people, I think, to evolve out of that nightmare mm-hmm. uh, where they feel safe and secure. I don't know if it will ever happen again because of the natural resource shortages being suffered in Africa in modern times because of lack of water and drought. A lack of food. Uh, we have not seen any major civilization um, come out of Africa at this time in history. Again, mm-hmm. because of the 
shortages of natural resources. And um, that that flows through to what we now know in an evolving um, definition of our globe at this time. I've been interviewed quite a bit recently. And that is that the um, health and wealth of countries in the future will be determined by their availability and access to fresh water. So the, um, we, da- we now have what we call the Water Poverty Index, where we list about 175 countries as to the top 10, which, ha- which are blessed with water. Those will be the new Saudi Arabias of the future with wealth because mm-hmm. they have so many water resources readily available to them. So there's a switch in consciousness relative to our awakening um, to what water actually is and what it gives us in security and peace and health. And uh, we're waking up a little late, but um, obviously we were meant to evolve to this point in time where there would be an awakening um, and a change of consciousness toward our relationship with water. And uh, many, many things play into this, um, including, by the way, um, we have Sharon Benson who's joining us here, don't we? Yes, we do. Um, Tell uh, us about Sharon. Yeah, and great. Uh, And uh, with music, uh, because we now know through the PET scans of minds through studies that um, the parts of the brain that respond to good food or, or water um, our sex, um, the the things that the feel good things, the survival things. Oh, well, you know, you feel secure. You have water. Oh, that water feels great. You know what it gives us. Of course, when we when we're thirsty, when we drink water, the first place it goes is to our brains. Um, but those regions of the brain, Brian, that respond to food and water and sex are the same regions of the brain that respond to music. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's why music is so powerful in, um, in inspiring humanity and, in, I feel, in leading humanity. Um, it, it plays so beautifully into those regions of the world uh, where we need good food, where we need good water. And also music, and uh, when people were enslaved, when people were impoverished, uh, what was the what did they have? They had music. The slaves in the field would sing their beautiful, ritualistic, repetitive, meditative music. Slave slaves and ships would sing. Mm-hmm. Um, so in music, it, again, because it gives that, it reaches that part of the brain uh, that feel good. Um, it's uh, a beautiful thing to have under times of stress or t- uh, times when things are horrible and things are going very poorly. Uh, so it's kind of nice that we have Sharon here because I'm aware of the fact that she recently composed a water song. And um, when uh, I'm in the the film Flow, that you're you're aware of the film Flow for Love of Water, Brian. You know what? I'm not right now, but I will be. Okay. Tell us about it. Film that came out at um, debuted. Um, the premiere was at Sundance. 
It has played in film festivals around the globe. It's won many, many awards. It won recently the United Nations Best Documentary Award, uh, which is huge out of all the documentaries done in the world, and this won first place uh, for 2008. And it's now playing in theaters uh, across the United States and in some other countries as well, as we speak. And uh, people can go to the website uh, flowthefilm.com and see what theaters it is playing in. Uh, it'll be available on DVD in about uh, sometime in December. But I, I'm in the film because they became aware of my work with my books and writings and speaking. Uh, but the film um, is beautiful and uh, I think uh, the, there is some beautiful music that goes with it that was composed by a French composer. Mm -hmm. um, but prior to introducing this film, what I have done at some big venues, like at Lincoln Center, um, I would put on uh, this song that Sharon composed, and we have yet to add the Native American flute soundtrack to it. And so we would play that song, and then I would accompany the song live playing Native American flute. Mm -hmm. And I saw that that's one of the instruments that you play. Yes, I've been playing that. Uh, based on my, I started playing Native American flute when I had exposure, uh, when I lived with uh, Native Americans during my 7,000-mile uh, horseback journey across the United States that I called a ride for nature about you, 30 years ago. Can you tell us about that? I mean, that was after, you know, there's one thing I'd like to get back to that maybe a lot of yeah. people don't know. Okay. When I said that you listened to that inner voice, I pictured myself riding to college. I used to ride a motorcycle to college myself in Pennsylvania. Are you and, <laughs> and you're riding over a river. Yeah. And you uh, you see some dead fish floating upside down, and you take that extra effort to get off your bike and walk a couple miles to find out what the problem is. And, and, and really, I thought, wow, what a synchronicity, and what, a, what an extraordinary individual that you would actually get off your bike when you had something else to do and go explore. And really, that, that seemed to me to really catapult your entire focus and career uh yes that was um a, a turning big turning point in my life i raised again on an organic farm did a lot of fishing with my dad and my brother once so i would play hooky from school and, and literally go fishing um but yes, uh, like you say, Brian, uh, going over a bridge on the motorcycle, and it is such an instinctual, natural thing when you're going over a river, whether in a car or a motorcycle, a bicycle, or walking, you look down at the water. Mm -hmm. uh, it almost calls call to you to do so. And so I was looking down at the river as I'm riding over, and I saw dead fish. You could see the white belly of the fish, and that's what I knew from experience that they're dead. Uh, so I, I didn't even hesitate. Um, I was on my way to class. I um, put myself through college on an athletic scholarship playing lacrosse, Native American sport, and some academic scholarships. But I pulled off without hesitation, parked my motorcycle, and started hiking up the river. It was late spring and uh, kept getting hotter and hotter, and so I took off my jacket, took off my helmet, <laughs> and hiked and hiked many miles 
before I found the kill zone and uh, hiked back, got on my motorcycle and rushed to class. And I felt for sure, Brian, that's, of course, you know, I was only a sophomore in college, Mm -hmm. felt someone, you know, you know, the government, someone's going to, you can't have dead fish flowing down a river and people not pay attention. So I figured someone would figure out or saw what I saw just naturally. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I got the munchies uh, late the, the next day. I was studying, and I walked down to the local store, and I saw on the front page of the newspaper, the Marstown Daily Record, that um, massive fish kill. And so I read this story, and it said, scientists bewildered as to source <laughs> of fish kill. And they had the state scientists there, the regional scientists, the Board of Health people, and what happened was many miles below the bridge that I crossed is a town called Hanover, and there was a dam in the town of Hanover, mm-hmm. and all the fish collected behind the dam. And during the day with the sun, their guts would burst. And so you had rats coming out at night and raccoons, and so it became somewhat of a macabre scene, never mind the entire town stinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this went on for a couple of days, and they kept announcing that scientists uh, cannot find source of fish kill. So I called the reporter, Helene Kingsland, and I said, uh, I know it killed the fish. <laughs> <laughs> so she goes, well, who are you? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> I said, I'm a, I'm a sophomore at Fairleigh Dickinson University, and she goes, well, what makes you think you know when all these scientists don't? So I told her the story, and she put the editor on, and the story sent her and a photographer to go with me. Mm -hmm. We took a long hike up the river, and as we were going up the river, we passed industries that were spewing out noxious chemicals, changing the color of the river, some steam, but there were dead fish above the industry, so I knew the industries were not killing the fish. So we continued up many miles, and what had happened was the state was changing the course of the river for a new highway they were putting in. So they stripped the uh, huge area of trees. They changed the course of the river, put an earthen dam up where the old riverway used to be, the course of the river, and diverted it into the new freshly dug river, the uh, riverbed. And just upstream of that, the fish were alive and full of life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, through common sense and what I knew from being with my dad and some of my readings, I knew that, first of all, when the water would be warmer there because there were no trees, no shade, um, so the water would be hotter, so the metabolism of the fish would pick up, causing a higher demand for oxygen. The fact that there would be so much sediment, the bulldozers were crossing back and forth across the new riverbed, so they were churning up sediment, so that would clog the gills of the fish. And so you have increased metabolism, then there would be less oxygen because of the uh, temperature of the water being higher and the sediments uh, being stirred up would deprive the water of oxygen. So basically what they created, I called it a kill zone. Mm -hmm. And 
it just embarrassed all the scientists and health agents. I was wondering if either they were told, you know, are was so many miles upstream that they didn't think that expansively of going about seven, eight miles upstream. I don't know, but anyhow, it was a huge revelation. Put me on the front page. And yes, it launched um, me into doing other things, including investigating some industries and um, studying uh, water law and having some industries indicted by federal grand juries based on my uh, water sampling and photographic evidence. In an 1899 law that no one thought even was going to do anything. As a matter of fact, yes, it was an 1899 law that was passed by our forefathers who were visionaries because they came from England and they knew what had happened over there. Um, and so our forefathers put a federal law into effect called the 1899 Refuse Act. And it was a provision in there for citizens to um, act on their own if um, they saw something that was being discharged into a navigable waterway that was harmful. Mm -hmm. And so I used that law and um, successfully. And what was the beauty behind that was, uh, in fact, Ralph Nader, when I met with him, he didn't even know that the 1899 Refuse Act was still something that was applicable and usable. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the beauty was the timing, because I had submitted my accounts to the federal grand jury in the U.S. Attorney's Office, my evidence prior to the passage of the 1972 Federal Water Pollution Control Act which did not have a citizen provision in it for citizens to submit evidence against companies and would have superseded and basically um, wiped out the 1899 Refuse Act. But the beauty of it was was that the U.S. Attorney's Office and the courts used my counts under the 1899 Refuse Act, and then the counts that I um, had gathered after that law passed they applied some of the my evidence to to the new law and took both into the courts at the same time. And the judge gave um, uh, so many counts against the company under the old law and so many against the new, uh, under the new law, and um, successfully. And the companies pled guilty under both laws simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So it established a legal precedent that. Um, allowed the 1899 Refuse Act to stay in effect today, and it's still being used. In fact, Robert Kennedy Jr. uses that law considerably in his River Keepers organization. You know, you started, you were really the start of an entire wave, and, and I read that your, your father really thought you were wasting your time, didn't think that one person could really make a difference, and what a difference you've made. Well, my parents, they were afraid to um, challenge authority. I guess. Uh, they, were, they were old school. Mm -hmm. um, but after that, it was like a huge awakening. <laughs> 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 and then my father, yeah, he felt, yeah, you know, should should speak up and challenge, you know, things at town hall and raise your voice. It was amazing to see his transformation. <laughs> well, that was a great opportunity. And then just a few years later, you went on on that ride for nature and you know a 7,000 mile trek that traversed from San Diego to, to Maine 
what in the world were you thinking? Boy, I need to raise awareness. And, and that had to be one of the most difficult journeys that you've ever had. Uh, certainly challenging and difficult, but also the most beautiful journey I have had in my life, Brian. Mm-hmm. Uh, living outside for two years, uh, zigzagging from San Diego to Maine across this beautiful country, across America, um, meeting people from every walk of life in this country, uh, living deep in the country, 75, 100 miles from the nearest house or road in the southwest, um, to be alone like the, back there with my lead horse and pack horse, um, truly a transformational journey. Uh, I kept diaries along the way. I still mm-hmm. have them, but it was a, a beautiful, beautiful experience. And you're talking about listening to your inner voice, Brian? <laughs> Um, I was working as the, after I got all of this national publicity and television exposure for the work on um, the indictments against the industries, uh, the city of Newark hired me um, as their senior environmental analyst, and I go to um, three-piece suit jobs to bring in water to the city and to clean up some of the industrial pollution. Mm-hmm. And I'd have meetings in the World Trade Center with the Port Authority on a pretty regular basis and take a helicopter, Port Authority helicopter, over the Hudson, and the confluence of the Hudson and Passaic Rivers is right there where Newark is, and that was under my purview. But um, I kept getting these visions um, while I was in these meetings of a man on horseback riding down the side of a mountain toward a river. Mm Mm-hmm. And they were so vivid, uh, and they were literally daydreams. And then I'd come back to the meeting, and once in a while people would say, Hey, hey, William, William. <laughs> and uh, so one day I woke up, uh, Brian, and uh, walked into the office and resigned because I truly, sincerely felt that's what I was supposed to do. Absolutely. Well, you listen to that inner voice. I could tell. Everything I've read about you, it takes a baseball bat for me to get moving. I mean, I have to be run over by a steamroller, <laughs> and then I decide, <laughs> I guess they're trying to tell me something. Okay, well, I'll listen now. And uh, that that's just an incredible story. Well, the more you do that, Brian, you know as well as I do, the more you listen to that voice, the clearer it becomes, and the better your journey becomes. Mm-hmm. And by following that passion the thing that everyone should know. You follow your passion. You end up not only helping the world and helping everybody else, but you help yourself because, you know, you move through life and you you get connected to the right people at the right time and things start to happen and one person changes the world. Every one of us has the opportunity to change our world and we do in each day. You know, that is something that I really have drawn out of the work that you've done, and certainly the books that you've written. I mean, Walter Cronkite said on your book um, uh, that you wrote, the first book, The Holy Order of Water, this is an extraordinary book, the results of one man's passionate effort to save us, to save civilization from our ignorant waste of our precious water resources. I mean, what what greater uh, uh, words could you have 
about the work that you're doing from one of the most uh, highly respected individuals on our planet at the time. Uh, yes, I, uh, Walter is still with us even though he is ailing. Um, and I was so fortunate to work with him on um, a water project on the island of Martha's Vineyard where we had um, some disgraceful uh, waste being uh, dumped by these huge sailing yachts in a confined harbor um, and causing a, a horrible, horrible bacterial contamination problem. Mm-hmm. And um, he called me uh, because he lived on the harbor, Egertown Harbor, and still does, and um, asked if I would uh, come over and meet with him and the commodore of the Egertown Yacht Club um, to review um, a project that he was proposing. And we sat down and talked at length. He was proposing to try and clean up the harbor, but... uh, I recommended that we do an in-depth study to actually nab the guys that were dumping the pollution into the harbor. And so we did an intensive program starting in spring all the way through the summer. And it was so evident as to what was happening. The um, evidence certainly cannot be contested. And he walked in with Robert Hubner, the commodore of the Egertown Yacht Club, and put the study on the the selectman's desk at this public meeting and Hmm. expressed their outrage. And uh, within a year, they um, had changed everything. The visiting yachts were no longer dumping their heads. They had pump outs. They had an entire system in place. They had bylaws in place. They changed the beginning points of races for the yachts further out at sea, and the harbor um, was all cleaned up. And, to, you know, here again, you're right, Brian. Um, this, you know, the, you can affect change. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. If you care and, and if you make the effort, you, you can truly transform this world. Well, the last question I have for you before we get Sharon on the line, I'd like to, I'd like to find out about the last, the book that you've just written, Water Voices from Around the World, which recently received the first place gold award at the world's largest international book awards competition for the category of most likely to save the planet. <laughs> Tell us about this work and all the people who helped you in this book. Well, I I was very blessed. Uh, I spoke at the United Nations because of my earlier book, The The Holy Order of Water, uh, Healing Earth's Waters in Ourselves. And um, when I spoke at the U.N., the ambassador from the country of Tajikistan was there in the audience, and his country was the country that was just at that time um, finishing up with the international year of fresh water at the United Nations because Tajikistan it's in South Central Asia a small country that used to be part of the former Soviet Union um, has about 65 percent of South Central Asia's water coming from its mountaintops this fresh water mm-hmm. so they did the um, sponsored at the UN the International Year of Fresh Water and they received so much attention I mean it's a tiny little country most people never even heard of it but they they received so much attention 
that they um, got the gusto to go for setting up the International Decade of Water. And I was invited to sit in at the, for the planning of that decade of water at the United Nations uh, by the ambassador from Tajikistan, Rashid Alimov. And um, while we were in the roundtable discussions, uh, came up about a publication that would be international and represent the intent of the decade of water. And I threw out, because I had a book on the back burner called uh, Water People, where I would have people around the world submit articles for the book. And um, the, everyone liked the idea, and the ambassador said, well, why don't we um, put forth a book uh, and um, based on people um, who are involved, profound water people from around the globe, including shamans, people from every walk of life imaginable. And um, so that launched um, launched me into um, putting together that book because of my past experiences as a publisher of Martha's Vineyard Magazine and Nantucket Magazine. Mm-hmm. And having a huge water network, uh, because I've been doing this water work for decades, and uh, put together this book, um, had some wonderful people who signed on when they received a letter of invitation. I mean, we had Kofi Annan, um, we had uh, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, Leonardo DiCaprio, mm. Ted Danson. We had three of the people, the scientists, that won the highest water award possible in the world. And they signed on. And so we had some of the world's foremost water scientists, water researchers, artists, and um, people from Iran, Turkey, um, Israel. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't, you know, Egypt. We had um, people who were at war with one another, but yet their water scientists were conversant with each other. And they all work together in putting together this book. So um, I feel very honored that I was involved with it. It took four years of my life. Um, It uh, still is receiving a considerable amount of attention and exposure to some amazing people in amazing circles. And I just hope that... um, Well, it has already changed um, some things in some regions of the world. And I feel good about that. It's just, um, like you said, Brian, um, synergy of something manifesting at a certain time, and it, it, it creates a change in that region. And this book did do that in some regions of the world, especially in Liberia. In fact, it stopped um, five uh, different warring tribes, tribes that were killing each other wow. over the limiting, very limited water resources. Um, and the question that was put to them was uh, to share their water rituals in a an article that they would compose for the first time in thousands of years, but through this book to share their water rituals with the world. So the shamans and the women had to meet in the five tribes to discuss and to do a, a blood sacrifice. Uh, as to whether they have sacrificed an animal and read the entrails, um, mm-hmm. the way they still do things, 
And um, it came up that they were to do that together, and it created a dialogue amongst themselves. And the fact that they felt that the world was listening and watching them and that they, as a group, were sharing for the first time their water ceremonies and rituals with the world caused them to cooperate with one another instead of kill each other, killing each other, to share the very limited amount of water that was there. And that, that's a, it is a beautiful organization that um, uh, everyday Gandhis um, that was responsible for um, all of that happening because mm-hmm. the woman that put that together just happened to be working in that region, and I met her in Santa Barbara. And again, the synergies brought it all together quite beautifully. That is a fabulous story and a wonderful book. Uh, you can buy all of William's books at Amazon.com. Is there anyone er, anywhere else that they can get in, get these books? They can go to the bookstore? They can, and it would also be nice for them to visit the website, watervoices.com, um, because they'd get some backstory. They'd get a lot of other information there than they would get anywhere else. And the Excellent. book is it's less expensive there than anywhere else as well. It's and that's nice, too. It's free shipping, so, and yeah, they get a lot from the going to the website. Excellent, excellent. Well, why don't we get Sharon Benson on the line, and we'll Wonderful. chat with her a little bit. Wonderful. Hello. Hi, Sharon. Welcome to the uh, Call to Consciousness. Thank you. It's an honor to be here, Brian. Honor to be here, especially with William. Um, I feel very lucky to have... Have, have him come into my life. It was kind of like what you had said about the right people come to you at the right time. And, mm-hmm. and I, I hope that um, I can be of service to William. And, and this is very exciting to, have, you know, to be able to use my gift of music to assist William in any way that I can. And I'm honored to have him be using my song as well. So, Sharon, tell us about your song. Um, well, when I actually met William, and, and it's been uh, at least four years ago, uh, somewhere in around the same time that uh, William just had mentioned about Water Voices uh, being a labor of love and taking four years, and when I found out about William um, through other, just being concerned about water on the planet and learning about how desperately we need to conserve our water on the planet, um I somehow, again, just through another person, was introduced to William and immediately caught on to what he was doing. And I have been a songwriter for many years. I have certainly been a lover of water all my life. My father was an artist and and painted water paintings and, and things like that. And uh, music has been a part of me since I was a child. And I've always wanted to make a difference in my life. It's through music, using music as the vehicle, because it's just, like William said, it's 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 a universal thing, and it's used in so many ceremonial things. It's easy to allow people to open their heart together, and the, the same, I feel the same about water being so precious and special. It's all, it's so much a part of us and a part of our <laughs> emotions, and part of it is life you know i'll Uh, tell you what is so funny about talking about water with both of you i was standing in my shower probably about five years ago and i love showers and and all of a sudden the thought the raindrop came to me 
And I went down to the computer and I typed in the raindrop. And I thought, hmm, this will be an interesting poem. And it started out, it said, I'm just a raindrop. I'm smaller than small. What am I doing here? I have no use at all. What are you talking about, asked the cloud. You're part of the water system and you should be proud. No, said the raindrop. I'm sure you are wrong. I'm good for nothing and soon I'll be gone. I know your problem, the cloud said in reply. I can do nothing to help you. I can only stand by. However, before you go, there's something I would like you to know. Without you, there would be no life on earth. I urge you to rethink the state of your worth. The raindrop didn't listen and soon let go of the cloud. And, and the story continues on. It's a circular story. It was the first book that I ever wrote, and ten books were downloaded through me when I finally stopped controlling and got into the passenger seat. And it sounds like both of you have gotten into the passenger seat a long time ago. But you oh, know, that's water. A beautiful, beautiful poem, Brian. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's actually oh, a, a wow. children's book. I and have I, and I have seen that book, by the way. You know, it, it it's just the story of water, and and in the yeah. end, it remembers the oneness of everyone and everything. And then the cloud has the problem, and it's really the same problem that we have in the world. It's not taking notice of what's right in front of our face. I got to tell you, in talking to you guys. Water is so much more important to me, and it was has always been important. But now the thought of conservation. What is it that we can do here in the United States to help with the water problems that we have? Go ahead, Sharon. You answer, then I'll follow. Okay. Well, I, you're so much better at this, William. But, I mean, for me, I, I think the minute I became really aware of how important and how precious water is is i don't run my water while i'm washing dishes i'm i I don't run the water in between even when i'm in the shower if i'm washing my hair i turn off the water and i do the shampoo and then i'll rinse it and the same thing is every bit like if the water is running and it's not being used some you know it's wrong for me i mean i'm so conscious of not not wasting not wasting anything there's people um i was recently in the virgin islands and and they have a water problem there they're all surrounded by water and yet they have cisterns to catch the rainwater and they have to use their dishwater to water their plants and it's those kind of things if everything that we're doing we're not just running water unconsciously um to me that's a really good way to conserve well wow, that's water. a great that is a great opportunity how do we take our dishwater and turn that into, I mean, do you have a storage tank somewhere that you would s- siphon that off into? Well, there's some, um, did you want to answer that, William? Yeah, it's a gray water system where you actually do store it, yes. That and, sounds and like and a great it, opportunity. Yeah, certainly, and to answer your question relative to what people can do, uh, we have become so addicted to consumer products that are so harmful to the environment and to the biosphere. Uh, and certainly times like this when people are stretched for money, I, again, feel all this was meant to unfold for a purpose. And what a beautiful thing in the past when people used to be connected with the living world uh, what if a family were to buy a beautiful tree or a couple of trees and uh, use that as their gift to one another and to the world uh, and Christmas or any holiday? Mm-hmm. And um, as the years go by, they'll visit the tree or see the tree in their yard and remember the family planting it and sharing in its growth and it, the, taking care of the tree and the tree taking care of them. 
I, I think now to continue in, along the patterns that got us to this dangerous point in time where the natural resources are stressed and the living world is stressed and wake up to the living world and again uh, live as simply as we can um, to not buy plastic things. It takes a thousand years or more for these plastics to biodegrade and we're not mm -hmm. going to be around. Um, don't buy bottled water because the chemicals from the plastic leach into the water and the container takes a thousand years to biodegrade, so you're drinking lousy water on top of that. You're contaminating the environment with toxins when they make the plastic and then when you throw it away. Uh, so it's just the raising, and you know, you say it so well, Brian, and the purpose of your program, awakening to consciousness, awakening yeah. to a living world, Sharon's right there, you're there, and I've seen so many people uh, through working with water awaken to that type of consciousness. It's amazing. It's almost like a miracle. Mm -hmm. People that have lived materialistic lives um, and the habits that are indoctrinated into us through television commercials and through the checkout counters with those impulse buying plastic goodies for the kids to, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're starting to wake up that, hey, you know, uh, we can't continue with that same pattern anymore. And I, it's an awakening. It's an awakening to a new consciousness. I call it a, a water consciousness or a water awakening, awakening to life. Uh, and we're, we're all there. Sharon does it with her music. You do it with your radio program and your books. I do it my way. And each person has been gifted talents here in their earthly journey, in their soulful time here. They have talents that they can use and to help everyone else and to help the world. You know, William, the universal flag really represents that. It re represents everyone using the talents that they have. And it's the first symbol that connects everything rather than separates because every symbol that we have in our world, every flag, represents a separation by border or race, religion. You name it, we separate, whether it's the ball team that you're rooting for and I really think that that's why I was awakened for so many years to create the universal flag. It's really just to finally have a symbol that says, stop the nonsense, let's get back to the reality, just like you told us that those tribes reconnected. You have to connect to the truth of our interdependence with all things. Correct. With, without, Absolutely. with the loss of anyone, we're all history. Correct. And, you know, we each, like Sharon with her music. Um, Sharon, you know, you were talking there and about, you know, your water song. You didn't really elaborate on that, but uh, so many songs help us to awaken to what Brian just said. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. and could you talk about your water song? Yeah, tell uh, us about your water song. Thank you. Well, um, I mean, it's funny because I listened to William talk, and the song, when it came through me, 
flowed out. And there's that word, you know, flow. Everything seems to be <laughs> connected. And just it was something that flowed out so effortlessly, um, though I have to admit, William helped me with a couple of the words, and, and I wanted to run it by him, and, and he even helped it become something even better. And he, I definitely dedicate this song to him, and it was absolutely inspired by him. And just the thing of, there's, I'll just say one, one line in it uh, of the thing and what you're saying too, Brian, of everyone, the universal flag, we all have to come together. And there's a verse in the song that says, it's time to wake up and see what we're doing, dumping, polluting a sin to the one, the one who nurtures and cleans our being. Without water, nothing will grow. And, you know, it's that kind of thing that we do. The whole world has to wake up. I think more about more than just about water, which is if we don't have water, we don't have anything. But if we don't connect, come back to family, feel that inner oneness that we are really all of the same thing, we are all connected, and to stop, be able to somehow stop the fighting, stop the things Absolutely. in the world that are that are killing it. Absolutely. You know, yeah, it's so it's just you know, huge. I I I could talk to you guys for another 2 hours, but unfortunately <laughs> we have we have reached the end of our program and I just want to thank you William and thank you Sharon for the great gifts that you give to our world. I look forward to having each of you on the show again and 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 finding out other things that we can do and other ways that we can connect to help our world to come to the oneness that we are. Thanks for thank everything you. that you're doing. We'll see you in the near future. Until we see you next week, everyone stay conscious. Thanks. Tom Hartman here. My wife and I were thinking of buying new furniture, and we thought, why buy new? Why not reupholster our old furniture instead? After all, it's built better. It's better for the environment. And we thought about Riviera. Let Riviera reupholster your sofa, chair, or loveseat. They can take any piece of furniture and give it a whole new look with over 10,000 fabrics to choose from. And did you know that Riviera can also refinish your favorite dining table or other wood furniture? They do it all by hand, and nobody beats the quality of their craftsmen. Listen to this. Here's a special offer. Riviera is in the final weeks of their 70th anniversary sale. The first 70 callers today will get 70% off the labor on either upholstery or wood refinishing. Get ready to call. The first 70 callers will get 70% off the labor. Call one 800 55 cover 1-800-55-COVER. Call 1-800-55-COVER. Call now 1-800-55-COVER. If you're overwhelmed by debt, this is the last commercial your creditors want you to hear because we know the secrets to getting you completely debt-free once and for all, and we want to share those secrets with you. We're MST Financial, and if you call us right now, we'll give you the information that your creditors try so desperately to hide. Powerful information that will cut your debt faster than you ever imagined. And we'll give it to you free. Call right now, 1-800-577-6711. Your creditors want to keep you in debt so they can make themselves rich. As your debt spirals out of control, their pockets fill. So this is your best chance to give them all the payback they deserve while you regain control of your debt, your life, your peace of mind. Find out how easy it is by calling for this must-have free information. Settle your debt now. Call 1-800-577-6711. That's 1-800-577-6711. 1-800-577-6711.
Policies issued by American General Life Insurance Company, Houston, Texas. Not available in all states. For full details, visit MatrixDirect.com. So let's say you're 40 years old and married. We can find you a quarter of a million dollar term life insurance policy for less than $15 a month. In fact, we can save anyone up to 75%, which means you could save hundreds of dollars a year. Call us now for a free no-obligation quote. Call 1-800-900-2039. Hi, I'm Brent Langdon from Matrix Direct. We partnered with American General Life insurance to find you the lowest rates on term life insurance products. And with term life insurance rates falling to their lowest prices ever, it's easy to save money. Since 1995, we've worked harder than the other guys, so you can get the straight answers and personal service you need for the lowest price. Find out how much money you could save. It only takes five minutes. You can save up to 75%, and the call is absolutely free. Call 1-800-900-2039. That's 1-800-900-2039. KTLK AM 1150. We now interrupt this KTalk AM 1150 program for KTalk Sports. Our regularly scheduled programming will resume immediately following the game. KTalk AM 1150. Progressive is the new mainstream. KTLK AM 1150.com. KTalk AM 1150. 